Welcome to Permaculture Freedom Podcast. My name is Cody and I'm your host. This is a show about cultivating freedom in our lives so we can be our best self. Freedom to live a beautiful, regenerative lifestyle that inspires our families, our friends, and our community. To transform our lives and reconnect to nature within. It's a revival of our roots. Roots that run deep into the earth. We were born for this time. We were born for this time. Thanks for joining me on this beautiful journey. Thanks for showing up. Look at this healthy crop of rice. I will have more than 1,300 pounds of rice per quarter acre. It was grown without chemical fertilizer, pesticides, or agricultural machinery. I stopped using those things more than 30 years ago. All I've done is sow the seeds and spread straw. Nature has done the rest. The man you just met is Masanobu Fukuoka, who farms and gardens in Japan. He's living proof that even though we live in an age of high technology and complexity, for living well at home, there's no substitute for the wisdom of simplicity. This is Vermont soil, a long way from those rice paddies in Japan. My name is Vic Sussman. And this is the way I found the garden when I moved here a few weeks ago. Certainly needs some work and restoration. But that's the problem that faces us as gardeners. How do we develop land so it will feed us and build our health while still keeping us in balance with nature? That's why Mr. Fukuoka's story, as told in his book, The One Straw Revolution, and in this film, has such special meaning for me, and I think for you too, because he's moved towards simplicity by imitating nature. Instead of relying solely on technology, he's developed a philosophy and a set of techniques that allow nature to do most of the work. That's what I want to do here at my new place. Find a way to produce food and healthy soil while staying in harmony with the earth. Mr. Fukuoka has done this in his rice fields and his citrus orchard. Now, while I may not grow rice here, I know whatever I do grow will flourish if I can learn to trust and work with nature. Mr. Fukuoka doesn't use chemical fertilizer. He doesn't use pesticide. He doesn't plow his soil or even use prepared compost. He doesn't hold his rice fields in water all summer long the way farmers have done for centuries all over the world. His method requires less work per acre than any other, creates no pollution, and uses almost no fossil fuel. And yet Mr. Fukuoka's rice yields are as high as the most productive farms in Japan. When I first heard about Mr. Fukuoka, I was skeptical. There had to be more to it than just scattering seeds on unturned ground. And then I read his book, and I found that there was indeed much more to it. He grows a permanent ground cover of 
white clover. And then he spreads a straw mulch to enrich the soil and hold back the weeds. His crops sprout right through the clover. But instead of just telling you about these ideas, let's go back now to Japan to visit with Masanobu Fukuoka. Mr. Fukuoka's farm is near the hillsides overlooking Matsuyama Bay in southern Japan. It's a rich farming area. The climate is mild with plenty of rain. Mr. Fukuoka was raised here, in the village where the Fukuoka family has lived and farmed for more than 1,400 years. He grows about two acres of rice and barley and has a 12-acre orchard of mandarin oranges. This may not seem like much, but in Japan, where field sizes are small, it's considered a large farm. A national highway passes through Mr. Fukuoka's fields. An overhead railroad track has also been built, but is not being used. Students come from all over Japan and the world to learn from Mr. Fukuoka. Attracted by his reputation as a teacher and philosopher, and because he's the leading spokesman for natural agriculture in Japan today. The students live in mud-walled huts in Mr. Fukuoka's orchard. They help with the farming chores. Most arrive unannounced, not knowing what to expect. They stay for a few days or a few weeks and move on. Some remain for as long as several years. There are no modern conveniences. Students carry drinking water in buckets from the spring, cook meals over a wood-burning fireplace, light their huts with candles and kerosene lamps. They live entirely on food they grow themselves or gather nearby. Wild herbs, vegetables and fruit, fish from streams and ponds. They work hard from early morning each day. Their jobs vary with the season and the weather. The more the farmer increases the scale of his operation, the more his body and spirit are dissipated. He falls away from a spiritually satisfying life. A life of small-scale farming may appear to be primitive, but it allows me to study the great way. I believe that if one deeply understands the everyday world in which one lives, the greatest of worlds will be revealed. Mr. Fukuoka purposely has his students live this way because it helps develop the sensitivity necessary to tune in to nature's subtle voice. His philosophy is inspiring and has helped many people understand how they may live more thoughtfully here in America. Masanobu Fukuoka's farm is a rich mixture of trees, shrubs, herbs, and vegetables growing in a ground cover of weeds and clover. Chickens run freely foraging beneath the orchard trees, turning out the kind of eggs that can't be bought in stores. Goats are raised in the orchard too. The whole system works in harmony. Besides a traditional organic garden near his house in the village, Mr. Fukuoka grows vegetables in the spaces between the orchard trees. He mixes the seeds of cabbage, turnip, carrot, soybeans, cucumber, and many other vegetables and sows them in the spring. Then he cuts the clover 
and spreads the clipping over the seeds as mulch. Some vegetables go unharvested. They reseed and come up by themselves year after year, just as tomatoes, pumpkins, or corn will do in any garden. Mr. Fukuoka hasn't always lived on the farm. As a young man, he left his village home to be trained as a microbiologist. He worked in a laboratory in Yokohama as an agricultural customs inspector. Then, when he was 25 years old, Mr. Fukuoka had a flash of insight. He suddenly realized the perfect balance and abundance of nature. I can still remember it was the morning of the 15th of May. A night heron appeared, gave a sharp cry, and flew away into the distance. In an instant, all my doubts and confusion vanished. Everything I believed in was swept away with the wind. I felt that I understood nothing. My spirit became light and clear. All my agonies, dreams, and illusions disappeared. Something one might call true nature stood revealed. From the experience of that morning, my life changed completely. Despite the change, I remained a simple, foolish man. And there has been no change in this from then to now. Mr. Fukuoka saw that problems arise when people think they can improve on nature. So he decided to leave his job and returned home to test his ideas in his own field. At that time, modern technology and chemical agriculture were just being introduced in Japan. The combination of machines and chemicals allowed Japanese farmers to get about the same yields as before, but the work was cut by half or more. It seemed like a dream come true. And in one generation, almost everyone had switched to chemical agriculture. It wasn't so apparent then, as it is now, that the new system caused pollution and depleted the fertility of the soil. Masanobu Fukuoka imitates natural processes as closely as he can. He cooperates with nature instead of struggling to overcome it. Let's see now how Mr. Fukuoka's close-to-nature techniques work in his rice fields. Mr. Fukuoka coats his rice seed with clay, forming tiny pellets before sowing them. Years ago, he tried throwing the rice seed directly onto the ground, the way it would fall naturally. But birds and insects ate much of the seed, or it rotted before it could germinate. Then Mr. Fukuoka got the idea of coating the seeds with clay, pelletizing them, thus preventing birds, mice, and slugs from eating the seeds before they could sprout. Ingenious. To make the pellets, the seed is soaked overnight and then mixed with clay. Then it's pushed through chicken wire and allowed to dry in the sun for a day. Ideally, there will be one seed in each pellet. It's possible to make enough pellets in one day to seed several acres. The rice seed pellets are sown right into stands of ripening barley about three or four weeks before harvest. Growing both rice and winter grain like barley in the same field every year helps to control weeds by never letting the land stay idle. It's always too full of rice or barley for weeds to get established. It's also an efficient way to use land. 
Despite the intensity of double cropping, the soil improves every year because Mr. Fukuoka returns all the rice and barley straw to the soil, which digests it into rich, fertile topsoil. The rice seed sprouts from the pellets about 25 days after sowing, just as the barley is mature and ready for harvest. The barley is harvested near the end of May. The rice seedlings are trampled by the feet of the harvesters, but soon recover. The usual way to develop a plan is to ask, how about trying this, or how about trying that? But that approach only makes the farmer busier. My way was opposite. I was aiming at the pleasant, natural way of farming, which makes the work easier instead of harder. How about not doing this? How about not doing that? That was my way of thinking. I finally reached the conclusion that there was no need to plow, no need to apply fertilizer, no need to use insecticides. In fact, there are few agricultural practices that are necessary at all. It really comes down to a series of simple tasks. Scattering seed, spreading straw, harvesting. But it's taken him more than 30 years to reach this simplicity. Mr. Fukuoka's neighbors also plant barley using modern techniques. After harvesting their barley by machine, they burn the barley straw in the fields. To them, the straw is a nuisance because it gets caught in the machinery when they plow the field for rice. Mr. Fukuoka considers his barley straw a resource. He harvests all of it. After the grain is threshed, the straw is spread over the field as a mulch to keep weeds down and to return fertility to the soil. He's found that it works best if the straw is scattered every which way, just as it would have fallen to the ground naturally. The decaying straw also makes a good germination bed for the rice. Mulching is a most valuable technique for gardeners everywhere. It insulates the soil against extremes of hot and cold, conserves water, reduces weed growth, and ultimately decays into humus. When it's time for the neighbors to plant rice, they grow rice seedlings in a starter bed, then transplant them to the main field. They keep their patties flooded all season long to help keep weeds in check. But these steps are eliminated in Mr. Fukuoka's straw-mulched field, which you see in the foreground. Mr. Fukuoka also floods his rice fields, but only for a week or ten days. This weakens the weeds and clover and allows the rice to sprout through. The idea is only to discourage the weeds, not eliminate them, since they are habitat for beneficial insects. If the clover were not set back right now, it would become strong enough to compete with the rice. Do you see the rice seedlings in the clover and straw? Once the water is drained, the clover recovers, but only after the rice has become strongly established. Every few years, Mr. Fukuoka spreads some chicken manure to help decompose the straw. He used to let ducks loose in the fields. They ate weeds and left manure all over, but construction of the national highway made it impossible for the ducks to get across the road and back safely. 
He now uses manure from a neighbor's chicken ranch. A lot of people come to visit Mr. Fukuoka's farm. Lately, scientists and agricultural experts have been among them. But these specialists usually see only from the point of view of their own expertise. And few grasp the deeper meaning of Mr. Fukuoka's methods, his close-to-nature philosophy. It is now midsummer, and the neighbor's rice is growing in neat rows. Weeds have been eliminated by herbicides. In August, Mr. Fukuoka pulls a rice plant from his field and one from a neighbor's paddy. The roots of the rice plants grown in the herbicide-treated flooded paddy, shown on the right, are rotten and black by midsummer. The roots of the rice from Mr. Fukuoka's field, on the left, are still healthy and growing strongly. Mr. Fukuoka is probably the only farmer in Japan who doesn't grow rice in a flooded field all summer. Instead, he allows the roots of his plants to penetrate more than three feet into the ground. As they grow, they bring up minerals from the subsoil. When they decay, they enrich his land with nutrients and organic matter. To control leafhoppers and other troublesome insects, most Japanese farmers spray a strong pesticide two or three times during the growing season. This poison also kills beneficial insects, to say nothing of the danger for the farmer. Mr. Fukuoka doesn't use pesticides of any kind. Many insects, earthworms, and small soil animals live in harmony with each other in his fields. Make your way carefully through these fields. Insects, spiders, frogs, and dragonflies are everywhere. Moles and earthworms live under the ground. This is a balanced rice field ecosystem. Insect and plant communities live in harmony. Often, a plant or insect disease invades this valley. Microbes are completely unaffected. Mr. Fukuoka knows that every insect, even those most gardeners consider pests, has an important role to play. He believes that nature can and will control diseases and insects if we grow healthy crops in a biologically diverse environment. I talk about a do-nothing way of gardening. Some of you come here thinking life will be soft and easy. But you cannot sit back and expect nature to do the farming. I call that abandonment. People tamper with nature, thinking they can improve it. This causes negative side effects, which are more difficult to repair. Almost all the work in farming is created in this way. Work is important, but my farming is designed to eliminate unnecessary work. In September, a typhoon lingered off the Japanese coast, causing wind and heavy rain for several days. Mr. Fukuoka went to the fields to see how his rice was doing. The rice was just blossoming and I was worried that the flowers would be blown off before they could be pollinated. I knew I couldn't do anything about it anyway, but I couldn't help examining the heads of grain. 
I shouldn't be worried. Only pray and accept my fate. Human beings can never hope to understand nature. But my analytical mind still tries. I try to garden as closely as I can to nature. My techniques are still evolving. I try to achieve a pure state of mind, and yet at 65 years, I still have many imperfections. Clover seed is broadcast in the fields about three weeks before the rice harvest. The clover seeds are so small that you only need a few handfuls for a quarter acre. The barley seed is also broadcast among the ripening rice plants about three weeks before the harvest. The barley seed can be seen among the straw and clover. The rice grown with chemical fertilizer in the typical paddy grows tall but topples easily late in the season. Mr. Fukuoka's rice plants don't grow as tall as those grown with chemicals, so more energy is available for seed production. The neighbor's rice has about 125 grains in each head. Mr. Fukuoka's rice has 225 to 250 grains in each head. His yield is about 1,300 pounds per quarter acre, comparable to the yields of modern commercial agriculture. The rice harvest season is a joyous time. In celebration, the village shrine is carried through the streets. Most of the farmers in the area harvest their rice with modern machines. Mr. Fukuoka's harvest is done by hand. His students don't mind. They enjoy the silent harvest using traditional hand tools. At the time of the rice harvest, the barley is already sprouting beneath the rice. After the rice is harvested and threshed, the rice straw is scattered over the field, just as the barley straw was scattered six months before. And with that, the yearly cycle is complete. My way of gardening is pleasant. I have time for the important things in life, like writing poetry, singing, and participating in village life. I have lived in this village nearly all my life. My wife and I raised five children here. We enjoy the company of our neighbors and the richness of our lives. I have made mistakes in the past, but they were not really mistakes. They were hints which helped me coexist with nature. A life of small-scale farming or gardening may seem behind the times, but such a life offers many opportunities for greater awareness. It doesn't matter how the harvest will come out. Just sow seeds and care tenderly for plants and soil. You'll have joy. The ultimate goal of farming is not the growing of crops, but the cultivation and perfection of human beings. OK.
Okay, Masanobu Fukuoka grew up on a farm on the island of Shikoku in Japan. He saw that nature was completely interconnected. And what people were doing was taking this reality, this interconnected reality, and dividing it up into bits and pieces through their discriminating mind, creating north and south, creating uh, separating the tree from the bush, from the stones, and from the plants, from the animals, and adding values like good and bad, beneficial insect and a pest, and all of these things, and then creating ideas about how life came about, how did nature come, where did it this and that, and all of these, it's, all of these thoughts and this discrimination doesn't exist in the world of nature. This is only in the world of human thinking. And then people think that, get the idea somehow that they can actually improve upon nature. And so they try this and that, thinking that they, they, that they can uh, make human life better. But because of the limited understanding that people have, they can only um, get in the way, mess things up somehow and a side effect, an unintended consequence occurs. And so then people deal with that consequence in the same way, with the same way of thinking that they did the first thing and that creates a consequence, each one getting larger and larger until pretty much we find ourselves today, all we're doing just about is mitigating the unintended consequences of things that we've done in the past. So he tried to explain, he thought this would be this idea, this understanding would be of great benefit to the world. So tried to explain it to his co-workers and then even to people on the streets, but they didn't, uh, they didn't get it. They were living within the world of human thought completely. And to them, it seemed like what he was talking about was going back. Now, to Fukuoka, of course, this is not about going back. This is about reality. It's just this place that we find ourselves in. We don't know why, how it came about. Um, it just is. So what he decided to do is go back to his farm and apply this understanding to agriculture and therefore show its, and thereby show its uh, benefit to humanity. All of these things that we've created in our civilized world is really in a world that is in our heads. We have wandered off the path. Society has wandered off the path in several ways. One is the process that I described where we, it's the process where we separate ourselves from nature. I think anybody in the modern world does feel a separation from nature. We know there's a separation and Fukuoka pinpoints how it is that we separate ourselves by this process of thinking and discrimination and human values that all of these things don't exist in nature, so we're living in a separate world. So that's one way that we've kind of gone off the path. Um, another way is that somewhere along the line, and it seems to have been right around when agriculture began, about 10 or 12,000 years ago, somewhere along the line, people got the idea that human beings are 
different than other species, we're better. We're of more value. And that, that the, the world was given to us to do whatever we wanted. And that with, through our intellect and through science, uh, we could actually improve things for human beings. And, well, not so important what happens to other species. Eh, it's just collateral damage. And a third way that we've gone off the path, also relating to agriculture, is the practice of agriculture itself with plowing and the logging and the irrigation and all this agricultural management has really not been good for the environment. And we've, we've run down the richness that was given to us. So for us to get back to our original place in nature and to take advantage of the original bounty and to, boy, we've got a lot to do. We've got a lot to do. We've got to turn around all three of those things. But if we turn around the first two, then the change in the environment will happen of its own. Uh, because once we get into a proper way of thinking and a proper relationship to nature, then we will intuitively know how to make a living in the world, how to feed ourselves and shelter, give ourselves shelter, which also allows other forms of life to live and in, enriches the soil. And uh, we will just know that intuitively. That's the way people lived for all that time. He does call it natural farming, but let's say it's the natural way, it's the way of seeing nature directly. And people just wanna, they associate natural farming with the technique. It's not the technique, it's, it's the view. And once you have that view, you enter into nature and you participate from the inside instead of as a visitor from the outside, then you'll know exactly what to do. Usually Westerners refer to that as observation. But to me, observation um, implies, already implies the split, the separation, because it's an observer and the observed. Okay, there's so many words when you think about it are only work in the world of human thought and they don't work in the world of nature. So the idea of observation um, from the natural farming point of view is more of an interaction, that you are, you're not observing, you are actually living in nature and you're getting to know your place. As you practice natural farming, that is what you're going for is that you become so intimately connected with the place that it's an extension of yourself. But yes, observation is important because you're doing things, you're interacting with nature, you're doing what Fukuoka did, trying things, and then seeing what the response is, and then going that way. And pretty soon, you get so tuned in by following that trail that eventually you come to home. And home is the state that Fukuoka refers to in a lot of different ways, but as mu or as do nothing, you get to the point in which you are connected, totally connected right there. And the feeling, there's no, there's no uh, qualitative characteristic to that place, but he refers to it in, with as great joy and sometimes he refers to it as a state and upwelling of love and he really felt that love had an important role in our
understanding and enjoyment of the world because it is really at the basis of everything. So the overall approach that he took, you know, the usual approach to develop a system is to say, how about trying this and how about trying that? He decided to go just the opposite direction. How about not doing this and how about not doing that? So he took it from all of these agricultural practices and he said, do we really need to do this? Or is this something we're doing just to, because we caused a problem and so now we're doing this and then we caused another problem and now we're doing that and eventually he decided there was no need to plow the fields i mean basic stuff no need to plow the fields no need to do weeding no need to make compost no need to flood the rice fields like every other farmer in japan did in fact by the time i got to his farm which was maybe 30 years after he had been farming this way uh, there was very little that he did do, actually. He didn't prune. All he did was scatter seeds, sometimes encased in clay pellets. He scattered the seeds, spread straw, had a ground cover of clover, and he waited for the harvest. And in the orchard, it was a similar approach. When he got to the orchard, it was, the, it was eroded down to subsoil, so he enriched the soil using ground cover of clover and uh, deep-rooted plants like daikon and burdock and uh, dandelion and docks and so forth. And then he had radish and mustard and buckwheat and alfalfa and grains and comfrey and perennials. And then uh, he, he planted many different kinds of trees. And over time, this, after a very short time using his method, the soil improved to the point that he didn't have to fertilize. And at first, because there was no habitat for many of the insects, uh, he had to make natural insecticides like pyrethrum, which comes from chrysanthemum roots. And he had to spray that on his vegetables uh, in order to keep uh, things like cabbage worm and cabbage moss away. But after the, he established habitat for lots of different insects, then the natural balance made it so that he didn't have to worry about insect control anymore. See, so one thing after the other that he didn't have to do that nature took over. He grew rice during the summer and barley during the winter on the same field every year. And he spread the rice straw after it was harvested and threshed, he spread the rice straw back to mulch the barley field and he spread the barley straw to mulch the rice field. So he, he also thought that the straw would be effective for weed control. So when he first tried this, he took the barley and put it on the rice, but he kind of piled it on thickly and just in clumps, you know, just as the, you know, it came off the thresher. He piled it like that and it was very effective at weed control, but it was also effective at controlling the rice. The rice couldn't get through. So that year, he got a, his yield was about 20%. To him, that was a successful year because he saw in one corner, right where, they were the, right where he was taking the straw 
from the big pile and carrying it out to the field. In this one place, the straw had fallen just here and there, scattered instead of plopped. And there the rice did fine. And the weeds were not coming up. He goes, aha, and that's what he learned from that year. Yeah, it cost him. But and now he just he scatters the rice every which way. I say now, he, did, he passed away about four years ago. Okay, he scattered the rice every which way. And then he got the best of both worlds. He got the, the mulch on the surface that was keeping weeds down and also the uh, breaking down and enriching. It's like a sheet composting system. And still the rice came through, but n not the weeds, not so much. So, but I often hear that, you know, the, the Fukuoka's natural farming is, it's in a place, well, he did it in a place that's, that gets a lot more rainfall, and significantly, it gets a lot rainfall all during the summer, dependably, which, of course, in the Mediterranean climate, we don't, here in California and on the west coast all the way up to uh, Puget Sound. Uh, but that doesn't mean that you can't practice natural farming here. So let's take the California Indians in different parts of California. You've got desert and you've got arid. That's true. But you've also got the coast. You've got the coast range and the redwood country. And you've got the islands off the shore. And so it's so varied. And there were maybe 60 main tribes in California. And each of them managed to live according to this basic way of thinking. They all had the same view of the world, but maybe 60 different forms of natural farming being practiced here. When Fukuoka did, he tried experiments, not experiments for experimenting sake alone and not to try to understand how nature worked, but he wanted to get answers to certain practical questions. Most people, when they try to figure out a system, they'll see what didn't work. They'll focus in on what didn't work and try to fix what didn't work because they have a clear idea what they want to do. Fukuoka took, again, the opposite approach. He had no idea where he was going, but he tried different things and he saw what worked and went that way. He kind of went with the flow of correct answers or, you know, it's not correct answer, but it's with what nature was showing him. And what didn't work, he ignored. He just didn't go that way. For example, he knew he wanted a, some kind of ground cover that fixed nitrogen in with his soil building mix. So he tried 30 different kinds. And of those, he found that clover and hairy vetch worked the best for him. And the, the, the white clover, only the white clover, has roots that mat right on the surface in the top two inches or so. So it was very good at uh, weed control. So he tried things and then, and he saw what worked. And then he goes, aha, this is it. Okay, so then he went that way and that way he had no idea what the outcome was gonna be. What, he had no idea the goal. It was a journey to come back to nature, you know, and he referred to it as do nothing farming. But of course it has, it, that doesn't have to do with like literally not doing anything. It is letting nature take care of the insect control, the fertilizing, the irrigation, the, all of these things. And so 
um, the farmer really is doing much less. And he figured out how to do that by eliminating unnecessary work. That was sort of a tip off to him. If it, if it took a lot of effort, there's probably a better way to do it. Yes, of course, the modern society, and especially the people that are making money, the economics are geared towards everything that natural farming is not. It's exactly going in the other direction, supporting the materialistic lifestyle, not caring about the degradation of the landscape or what happens to other forms of life. It's because you know, these are all the products of this human world. Okay. And it is a big obstacle to, to accepting natural farming or going to live a life like this. And it's a big obstacle to people changing their own way of thinking because people are invested in that world. And they spent their lives becoming experts at certain things which uh, probably have no real value because they're not connected to nature or to the real world. Um, so how are we going to change those things? Boy, um, I like to live in the natural, real world as much as possible. But if I'm out, but of course I grew up, I grew up in Los Angeles. I'm a city boy. I grew up in the same schools and have the same background and cultural indo indoctrination, cultural values that pretty much exist now worldwide. There's no frame of reference. There's no fixed point that you can say this is, this is real. This is true. We can base all of our other decisions on this. There is no such thing in the world of human thought. And people try desperately to establish, they long for that. They try to establish something, you know, whether it's, let's say, humanism or the arts or some kind of religious dogma. It becomes, okay, this I know is real, and then I'll make all of my decisions based on this fixed point. But it could be any fixed point, really. It's just things people are thinking up. So for Fukuoka, the fixed point is nature itself, reality. The way that, that helped me was I started looking at my thoughts. And I went through the same process as Fukuoka used to establish the natural farming. But whenever I saw a thought that just seemed like so automatic, of course that's true, then I said, well, wait a minute, where did that come from? Is that really true? Um, do we really need to continue to grow progress? Is progress a really good thing? I mean, we're to progress, of course. We need to progress. And so I went through this process of evaluating and one by one, almost all of those things that I had grown up uh, believing was the truth. And some of these were, a lot of them were cultural. Like we're, the need to expand all the time. We need modern agriculture to feed the growing population. Boy, growth is a good thing. Science will find an answer, no matter what the challenge. Science will find an answer. I no longer believe these things. And you know what? It's left a whole lot of room. It's left a whole lot of room. I don't, you know, I see an article in the newspaper about science has found out some new thing about nutrition or, you know, the rover just landed. It's the rover, which is called Curiosity, 
just landed on Mars? I don't care. I think it's the most the ridiculous thing ever. So I don't have to read those articles. I don't have to clutter up my head with any of that stuff. And then that puts me, oh, there's a lot more room to, to see and experience. If you're a farmer, it's not that farming is any intrinsically any better than other uh, vocations, but with farming, you're out in the fields all the time. You're interacting with the plants and soil and the insects and the other creatures, so you're right there. The chance of having uh, this experience is so much greater when you're in the natural world than when you're, for example, sitting at a desk in a cubicle. Because all you see around you is the human things, the products of human thought. And so it's hard to imagine the world outside of that. So what are the benefits of natural farming? Well, of course, you learn to feed and clothe your family in a way that in which the, the earth is enriched. You become partners again with the other forms of life. And, even, and then there's this upwelling of great joy. What's not to like, really? Except that you have to, you do pretty much have to give up the materialistic um, uh, toys, which really have no place in that world. So you, you didn't need to make a commitment, a commitment. And then, so in your personal life, how do you make this transition? Well, I've kind of found it useful to follow the same technique. How about if we're not doing this and not doing that in the form of, well, of course, in your personal life, living as simply as possible. And there's great freedom and joy in living simply. It's called voluntary simplicity. So, of course, there's that. And there's changing the light bulbs in your house and things. But it's in the thoughts. Essentially, it's the same process that the Zen is trying to get to the same point where you're living and you're one with everything. Uh, and the people that teach pottery and teach uh, all of the arts in Japan are based on this idea that you come to a place in which there's no qualities and no thought and you are one with everything. And uh, if you're studying pottery, then of course it makes you a better person. It's a good thing. But at the end, you're left with a pot. With natural farming, you become a better, more joyful person, but you're also providing for your own livelihood. You're growing what you need to eat. And it also has the ability to heal. Using the, you know, in the real world, it's using the soil building combinations of plants and doing things that make the landscape more abundant than it was before. Um, and it also has the ability to heal the human spirit. I thought to read you a chapter from this book, which, if you have the book, pause the video, go and get it. It's chapter Limits of the Scientific Mind, and it's found on page 74. I hope you're all sitting comfortably, and I'll begin. Before researchers become researchers, they should become philosophers. They should consider what the human goal is, 
what it is that humanity should create. Doctors should first determine at the fundamental level what it is that humans depend on for life. In applying my theories to farming, I have been experimenting in growing my crops in various ways, always with the idea of developing a method close to nature. I have done this by whittling away unnecessary agricultural practices. Modern scientific agriculture, on the other hand, has no such vision. Researcher, research wonders about aimlessly, each researcher seeing just one part of the infinite array of natural factors that affect harvest yields. Furthermore, these natural factors change from place to place and from year to year. Even though it is the same quarter acre right of quarter acre, the farmer must grow his crops differently each year in accordance with variations in weather, insect population, the condition of the soil, and many other natural factors. Nature is everywhere in perpetual motion. Conditions are never exactly the same in any two years. Modern research divides nature into tiny pieces and conducts tests that conform neither with natural law nor with practical experiences. The results are arranged for the convenience of the research, not according to the needs of the farmer. To think that these conclusions can be put to use with invariable success in the farmer's field is a big mistake. Recently, Professor Suno of Ihaimi University wrote a lengthy book on the relationship of on the relationship of plant metabolism to rice harvests. This professor often comes to my field, digs down a few feet to check the soil, brings students along to measure the angle of sunlight and shade and whatnot, and takes plant specimens back to the lab for analysis. I often ask him, when you go back, are you going to try non-cultivation direct seeding? He laughingly answers, no, I'll leave the applications to you. I'm going to stick to my research. So that is how it is. You study the function of the plant's metabolism and its ability to absorb nutrients from the soil, write a book and get a doctorate in agricultural science, but do not ask if your theory of assimilation is going to be relevant to the yield. Even if you can explain how metabolism affects the productivity of the top leaf when the average temperature is 84 degrees Fahrenheit, there are places where the temperature is not 84 degrees. And if the temperature is 84 degrees in Ehemi this year, next year it may only be 75 degrees. To say, that, to say that simply stepping up metabolism will increase starch formation and produce a large harvest is a mistake. The geography and topography of the land, the condition of the soil, its structure, texture and drainage, exposure to sunlight, insect relationships, the variety of seed used, the method of cultivation, truly an infinite variety of factors must all be considered.
a scientific testing method which takes all relevant factors into account is an impossibility. You hear a lot of talk these days about the benefits of the good rice movement and the green revolution. Because these methods depend on weak improved seed varieties, it becomes necessary for the farmer to apply chemicals and insecticides eight or ten times during the growing season. In a short time, the soil is burned clean of microorganisms and organic matter. The life of the soil is destroyed and crops come to be dependent on nutrients added from the outside in the form of chemical fertilizer. It appears that things go better when the farmer applies scientific techniques. But this does not mean that science must come to the rescue because the natural fertility is inherently insufficient. It means that rescue is necessary because the natural fertility has been destroyed. By spreading straw, growing clover and returning to the soil all organic residues, the earth comes to possess all the nutrients needed to grow rice and winter grain in the same field year after year. By natural farming, fields that have already been damaged by cultivation or the use of agricultural chemicals can be effectively enjoyed this episode and want to hear more like it you can do three simple things right now one you can subscribe to permaculture freedom podcast if you haven't yet number two you can leave a short review for us on itunes and third share this episode with a person in your life you think would enjoy it too thank you i really appreciate your support until next time take care my friend